Welcome to Thought Leaders Unplugged, a podcast series that examines the most pressing issues of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in higher education. Brought to you by the University of Maryland's Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. My name is Kaya McDermott, pronouns she, her, hers, and I serve as a staff consultant with the Center and one of your podcast co-hosts. My name is Tamia Webster. I use she, her pronouns. I serve as a staff consultant in the center and one of your co-hosts for the podcast. And my name is Roger L. Worthington. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland and executive director for the center. The Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education has a four-pronged mission, functioning as a national think tank, a research center, an academic institute, and a consulting organization for equity, justice, inclusion, diversity, access, and anti-racism in higher education. This podcast series was developed as a part of the Center's Think Tank mission, where in each episode of our podcast, we have candid conversations with renowned thought leaders at the forefront of higher education equity and justice efforts. Our guests will share innovative strategies, personal stories, and research-driven solutions that inspire us to reimagine a more equitable future for all learners and for faculty, staff, and administrators who serve them. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Annalise Singh, she, they pronouns, who is a professor in the School of Social Work with a joint appointment in the Department of Psychology and serves as the Associate Provost for Diversity and Faculty Development, Chief Diversity Officer at Tulane University. Dr. Singh's scholarship in community organizing explores the resilience, trauma, and identity development experiences of queer and trans people with a focus on young people and BIPOC people. Dr. Singh is the author of the Racial Healing Handbook, Practical Activities to Help You Challenge Privilege, Confront Systemic Racism, and Engage in Collective Healing, and the Queer and Trans Resilience Workbook. Dr. Singh passionately believes in and strives to live by the ideals of Dr. King's beloved community, as well as Audre Lorde's reminder that without community, there is no liberation. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay connected for upcoming episodes where we learn from thought leaders, exchange ideas, and co-create an inclusive educational landscape. Again, my name is Roger L. Worthington. I am Tamia Webster. And I'm Kaya McDermott. This is Thought Leaders Unplugged. Episode four, y'all. Can't believe we've made it. Hey, friends. How are y'all holding up right now? There's a lot going on in the world. No kidding. There is so much going on in the world right now. And as I was on my way over here, I was grounded by Dr. Singh's episode because she reminds us about solidarity and community. And one thing that I'm sure that most of us need right now is deep community and to find our way back to solidarity. Um, There is no justice without community and solidarity. So I'm holding our beloved community close and I'm in deep solidarity with our beloved community. And Roger, I'm sure this is sitting deeply on your heart as you have been a CDO at previous institutions, including the one that we're currently at. That's true. That's true. I mean, it's it's a difficult situation to be in for everybody. And when I think about what's going on all across the world right now, the violence in the world is really painful to be a part of and witness. And, uh, you know, that's not just uh, half a world away. There's a lot of things going on on college and university campuses all across this country as well. And so we have to be thoughtful about that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more. It is a really hard thing to navigate. And 
we're sitting with a lot to consider for ourselves, for our lives, and for the future of our communities and our institutions. But to Tamia's point, Dr. Singh is grounding us and reminding us that we have to do this work in community. And I'm just grateful to the podcast for one, like having these hard conversations and really critically thinking about our roles in justice and equity work. I feel like we've been on a bit of a journey with this podcast and I think have had some really deep and profound conversations. Episode one, we're talking about the SCOTUS decision regarding race conscious admissions practices and its implications in higher ed. Episode two, we're really talking about the future of our institutions post-SCOTUS ruling and then what it means to be an anchor and place-based institution. Like how do we activate and engage in our community and then Carlton brought it on episode three, where we had, I think, the most powerful conversation around whiteness and the role of power in racial identity development and emotional justice. Today is going to be, again, another powerful episode where we're piggybacking off of thinking and centering racial healing. Dr. Singh shares this work um, and how it began for her as a South Asian mixed race, genderqueer femme, New Orleans. Um, I might not be saying that correct. Is, all right. Yes, I know that the New Orleanians will come for me. So let me correct <laughs> myself. And this, I think, in her identities really prompted the creation of her book, The Racial Healing Handbook, that offers practical tools to help us navigate daily and past experiences of racism, to be able to challenge those internalized negative messages and privileges, um, and handle feelings of stress and shame. Uh, so let's jump right into the interview with Dr. Annalise Singh. Um, I also want to give you an opportunity to declare your positionality. Sure. Well, I think, you know, first is for me is always race. I'm a South Asian mixed race person. I uh, am a genderqueer femme person. I'm someone who grew up with, I think I'm a third generation PhD on my dad's side, mm -hmm. uh, my Indian Sikh dad's side. And then on my white mom's side, probably a little like kind of second generation access to the academy. I grew up in New Orleans, so I'm surprised I didn't say New Orleanian first, uh, but I think that's a really important part of my identity. I think New Orleans really taught me all the brutality of kind of white supremacy, how anti-black racism functions, what indigenous erasure, kind of that whole erase and replace thing looks like. And then like where other racial groups get slotted in those categories. So it taught me the brutality of that system, but I would say also the liberation pathways out of it. I'm someone who has light skin privilege, so sometimes I describe myself as a racial Rorschach. I had to get really clear that I know who I am racially, but people project onto me what they need me to be right. in any given moment. And so sometimes I have access uh, to whiteness, sometimes I don't. And I'm very clear mm. at this point in my life when that's happening and what's happening when I do get that access and when I don't. Wow, fascinating. Okay, I think we should develop that conversation <laughs> a little bit. I mean, you're yeah. really touching on some yeah. intersectionality pieces here mm -hmm. around your own personal sense of identity and queerness and, and, and other identities, but also then perceived whiteness at times and the access that that provides you. In institutions of higher education, what, what does that look like? How does that 
take place? I mean, do you have a personal experience or a story you want to tell around that? I think early on in my career and in my life, you know, I've been a community organizer doing racial justice, reproductive justice, kind of immigrant rights work, and uh, obviously queer and trans liberation work. Um, And so my days were really talking about those things. My days are still talking about those really important issues. Um, But who I talk to is really different. So now most of my meetings in a given day are with cis, white, straight men. And so I think we know the higher you go in universities, the more doodly and the whiter it gets. And so I think uh, for me... uh, you know, I'm just really conscious. A lot of our meetings are on Zoom uh, still. And so what people are perceiving, if they don't know my background, I just, it's very interesting, whether it's in person or uh, on Zoom, I, I can tell if, mm-hmm. if people are willing to spill their anti-blackness, right. if they're willing to <laughs> right. spill uh, their anti latinness or, um, you know, I, I kind of know what is happening in that room at that time. Mm. I also uh, tend to be the person in those rooms who might be the person saying, hey, where are the BIPOC folks? Where are the women? Where are the queer and trans folks? So I think holding this, these different positionalities, um, it usually requires me to kind of speak up constantly about my identity. So right. I think there's some fatigue in that mm-hmm. worth, but I think for me and the way I was raised, I'm very, um, I was raised deeply in the Sikh community and uh, that religious spiritual perspective for me is really about enlightenment doesn't come in the next life. Uh, Mm -hmm. It actually comes in this life through like doing community service, what we call seva. And that I, I was taught, it was just kind of embedded into me Mm -hmm. that like the purpose of our lives is really to confront injustice and to work towards liberation. So Yeah, you said seva. Can you define that for us? Yeah, seva is just community service. And uh-huh. so, again, it's not just any like, oh, we're serving people and I'm like the savior. But it's like we are in deep connection mm-hmm. for undoing oppressive systems. Well, why and is so, that important? Uh, he I says don't know. sarcastically. <laughs> <laughs> That As you you're an leading this diversity thought leader, <laughs> knowing that you have a good answer Actually, to that I need question. to turn the table around on you. Let me ask you some questions. Why is that important? <laughs> what is the difference between community service and community engagement? Exactly, and right? and you know we have people here who are going to really deeply talk about that, who are experts in that, such as Nancy Cantor, who right? is a chancellor of an institution, right? Rutgers at Newark that is community facing. Right. And, you know, her definition of how do you do community work as an institution is going to come up at this conference and she's going to put that forward as well. We're going to interview her later, too. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you're in for a treat, as you know. And I think really those definitions are so important because in universities, we kind of set ourselves outside of communities. I know at Tulane, you know, we're constantly talking about New Orleans isn't in our backyard. Right. We're actually in the backyard backyard. of New Orleans, Mm -hmm. but in terms of wealth generation, right, we're the largest employer in New Orleans. We have a huge impact, right? What do we do with that impact? And so you can imagine after Hurricane Katrina, which I always like to cite Angela Davis again, she said, actually, that was Hurricane U.S. government. And we always knew the levees were going to fail where they were going to fail in New Orleans. And so post uh, Hurricane U.S. government, I think... Tulane had always had a real strong emphasis on community service. I think where we've gotten to after 
uh, that devastation is community engagement. So mm-hmm. what, you know, every single one of our students actually take a community service uh, class, a course, but we're still wrestling with, you know, how do you move that from a colonizing, fetishizing kind of like impetus uh, and impulse to something that's deeply connected in our BIPOC city. I mean, we have deep queer and trans roots. We have deep BIPOC roots. So how do we bring that more um, into our reality and kind of reteach ourselves the history of our city? Because so many of us don't even know the history of racism in our city. I don't know how we got in. I think, how did we get on to New Orleans? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, because you're giving a concrete example of community engagement. I think that that's really important. And that's those concrete examples are the ones that people are going to learn from the best, right? The stories that we can tell about what we actually do when, you know, that that's what's really going to benefit the people who are listening in on this on this podcast. Um, otherwise, we can just talk, you know, intellectually and theoretically about a lot of things and not really give those concrete examples. And that doesn't do anybody any good. I agree with that, because one of the things uh, going back to New Orleans being a teacher is I think when you come to New Orleans, you are going to crash into so many different racial groups. You can't hide from different class stratifications. But um yet you still can. Right. <laughs> you can kind of squirrel your way uh, uh, up near the university, which is mm-hmm. more white and wealthy, um, or you can actually be a community member in New Orleans, um, which means to carry the responsibility for change and for really transforming who we are as people. Mm-hmm. So I know I'm back to New Orleans again, yeah, which is probably yeah. why I should have said <laughs> New Orleanian first as my positionality. Yeah. But I think no matter where we are in this work, Um, it's not just that the land has something to teach us, right? The history has something to teach us. I mean, there's an active history is we need to involve that in our present kind of activities and initiatives. Otherwise we kind of fall flat and we're just Mm kind of, I don't know if passing the buck is a weird phrase I should drop from my vocabulary. (laughs) Yeah. It's performative. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about that because, you know, you're in an administrative position, mm-hmm. right? You're a cabinet-level diversity officer at a major university in the United States, and you have the responsibility of leading forward issues of justice and equity and diversity and inclusion and anti-racism mm-hmm. on your campus. But you're also a national thought leader in this area and somebody who carries that forward in all of the work that you do. Um, how do you go about making sense of that work as an administrator and trying to primarily let's start with institutional transformational change of an institution like Tulane in the context of a city like New Orleans. That's a big question, big mm-hmm. series of questions. I think the first thing that came to mind was, I remember when I was interviewing at Tulane, and you were such a great support. Thank you. I love you so much, Thank my you. dear friend. Uh, but I remember the provost asking me, hmm, are you going to be like an activist CDO? And I was yes. like, um, yes. <laughs> I, I don't know that there's another way to do the work. Right. And sometimes I get frustrated uh, with our field, with our discipline, because I know there's a big body of research that just says, yes, the research can, the, the work can be checkbox. It can be faux. It can be fake. It can, Mm -hmm. it can be really kind of upholding the status quo. Uh, But the truth is from the first moment that black students sued universities to say, hell yes, we need to have access and you are going to change decades ago. 
Yes, <laughs> like decades ago, and with so much uh, support from abolitionist movements. I mean, there was so that that was dreamed of like hundreds of years before those moments. I think we we haven't always been accountable to that. Is the impulse for why our positions really exist? Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes. You know, in our university, we say EDI. I know some folks say JEDI or DEI. I, sometimes I say, I don't care what the words are. Yeah. It has to come back to abolition. It has to come back mm. to, like, what is the real reason we're here? And so I think sometimes in our movements, we actually tear each other down and before we can ever build each other up in the work. And so I share that because... Um, I don't know about being a national thought leader, but I mean, I wrote the racial healing handbook because I was trying to heal myself. The racial healing handbook really came out of myself as a mixed race person growing up in New Orleans, trying to make sense of the ways I was positioned mm -hmm. and knowing when I was positioned or getting confused about when I was positioned mm -hmm. to have access or a lack of access to power. And it really came from a lot of journal entries I had trying right. to understand that process. And so... I do think there's a deep emotional part of the work uh, that is intergenerational, that is very interpersonal, but has to involve dismantling racism and systems, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes in our EDI, our DEI work, our JEDI work, we, we do tear each other down. And so I think there is a way that we need to come together and remember our roots, right? Yeah. Like I'm just thinking of one of the people who quote unquote integrated Tulane, Pearlie Eloy. Um, she is such a kick ass like activist. And I can almost, when I get stuck in the work, I can almost hear her whispering in my ear of what to do next. Yeah. Not like to be like, Oh my gosh, are we ever going to get there? Uh, and I think some of this, um, the way I look at EDI work, or a lot of it actually comes from sitting at the feet of uh, Representative John Lewis in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. He constantly would teach us. Well, first of all, he would know your name uh, because he would come to Pride and he hung out with the queer and trans yeah. BIPOC folks. He so. would know your name. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. not just my name, <laughs> but a group of Everybody, us. Yeah. Like he knew our names. And not only mm. did he know our names, he knew our families, he knew our mm. stories. But he was very clear when he would meet us, he'd say, well, what kind of good trouble are you getting into? Exactly. And it wasn't just a quote that became popular after his death. No, he was serious. He was very serious. And I learned to have an answer. And so for me, good. I think that accountability piece of our work is it's not just a quote. It's like, well, what kind of good trouble am I making and who am I accountable to? I'm looking for the people who are not happy with the work I'm because they're there. I'm looking for the people who are like, thank goodness it's finally here who are feeling hopeful and I'm looking for everyone in the middle of those places because we need the pessimism we need the optimism but ultimately there's another mentor I had um, who really taught me in Atlanta that when we fight we win and I think that is something we often forget in the work is yes. that yes interest convergence Derek right. Bell hello I mean it's true yeah. like when white interests are aligned we're going to make hella progress but the other piece is that we also made progress ever since BIPOC folks kind of, which predated obviously a lot of white folks, have been in this land we now call the United States of America. And I think it's not just keeping hope alive. It's actually being very clear about what our generational charge is in the work in universities and outside of universities.
Dr. Singh is singing Tamia's song. I think Dr. Worthington, he was my supervisor. I'm sure I got on his nerves because I'm like, we have fight harder, push harder, who cares? And I think only maturity can help you ground yourself a little bit more to realize that you have to have a strategy, you have to fight, and you have to be accountable to your community. Mm. I know that when I was at the University of Maryland and when um, Lieutenant Collins was murdered, a position that was made here at the University of Maryland after Lieutenant Collins was murdered was the Bias Incident Support Services Office. And we were clear that students and people on our campus needed an apparatus to be able to report when words were said to them that made them feel unsafe. What Annalise was, is saying is that when the community pushes back, that our job is to have an answer for it, right? Like, and that we have to hear that pushback in a way that we don't take our things and run, mm -hmm. that we hear what people are saying, that we sit in those town halls and take some kind of verbal lashing sometimes. But at the end of the day, when we are accountable to a community and they tell us that what we are doing is not working, we have to pivot. And I appreciate Dr. Singh saying that. Couldn't agree more, Tamia. Um, I really just, I'm sitting with that question. What kind of good trouble am I making and who am I accountable to? And I think it goes back to, right, episode two with Nancy Cantor when she's talking to us about how to not sit in the ivory tower, but to be anchor institutions, to be place-based, um, to be engaged with our community and our surrounding. I think of a lot of institutions that I've worked at where, you know, the school's demographics don't necessarily reflect the communities that we are immersed in, that we are part of. And so I really think that it poses the question to all of us who are working within institutions is how do we continue to be, I think, in right community and be good neighbors to those who are around us and to those we know don't have access um, and to those we know are being oppressed and that's including the ways that our schools might be oppressing our cities and communities. I think about gentrification. I think about a lot of things, right, that come into play when we talk about um, who we're accountable to. But she also brings up her racial healing handbook. It's so good. It's so good. One, I'm going to say this, that I had read the book, did a lot of work in a class, in a graduate master's class. And I remember telling Roger, I was like, oh my gosh, like I read this book and he's like, well, I know Annalise. And I'm like, what? This guy is wow. And then I got a chance to meet her. And I just feel like that book is so powerful. Um, there is a lot there to delve in, buy it if you have not, read it, audible it, all the things, because I think she does a really wonderful job, which she'll later explain in this next commentary. You know, talking about that introspection that it takes for us to unlearn internalized racism, uh, and then the ways that we need to be in community with one another to, to uphold and maintain, right, this accountability to the work and to the progress. So let's take a listen. You know, you talked about writing the racial healing handbook, and um, what is that? I want, I want, you know, some most people in our audience know what that is, probably, but many may not. And I want to hear you just give a, you know, maybe a quick elevator speech. What is that, and why do we need it? Yeah, the racial healing handbook. I think it's a collection of ten practices. Um, I kind of uh, that really kind of give get us focused in our generational charge of dismantling systemic racism. Racial healing may sound like a touchy-feely word or phrase, but it's not. It's uh, that 
it's kind of premise is that there are kind of five strategies that we can use in everyday practices that are really internal. Uh, there are these big oak trees in New Orleans. And mm. when I think of those first five practices that begin with our own racial identity development and knowing how our racial identity development moves and changes and flows, they're like the roots in the ground, like these mm. deep roots yeah. we can form. Um, the, the last five strategies or practices are all about the work that we can do only with other people, right? right. And so um, it's kind of this journey from the internal, uh, knowing who you are, how you've internalized, how we all have uh, internalized uh, racism, white supremacy, mm -hmm. anti-black racism, and then how racism flows between us, not just interpersonally, but systemically. And the intersectionality of that. And then what our collective kind of role in the racial justice movement is. And so those last five uh, practices are really like your branches moving mm -hmm. out into the world. Yeah. And so, again, I, a lot of it was me trying to work out my own racial identity. But I did a lot of research, too. Yeah. I mean, I'm a racial trauma uh, uh -huh. researcher. And um, I think what I found is there is this big body of racial trauma, racial resilience, racial healing literature. But then there are all these autobiographies, right, yeah. from Sojourner Truth to Bell mm -hmm. Hooks to right. Arun Roy to people who've um, kind of fought the racial justice movement all around the world. And there was kind of a gap between these two, what I see as bodies of literature. And I think, you know, even I'll just ask you, Roger, do you think racial healing is possible in uh, your lifetime? Oh, uh, racial healing for me or for a nation or for however you want to answer globe? it. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I've done some of my own racial healing through my own personal psychotherapy and through interactions with friends like you. Um, but um, yeah, I think that as a nation, there's a lot of racial healing still yet to be done. And is it possible within my lifetime? Wow, that's a big question and a hard one to answer. And I don't know how optimistic I really am about that. I I hope that it's possible, but I'm not optimistic necessarily. Well, I we'll think, see. Well, yeah. And for everyone who's listening, you know, kind of just if you sit with that question, if it's possible, you'll kind of notice all the internal voices that come up. Hell yes. Hell no. Maybe. I don't know. Mm, yeah. And But I think what I've learned in my own lifetime, and again, sitting at the feet of mostly black women learning is that you know, liberation is an inside job. It's not something that anyone else can do for us. And so, um, but when you look at the literature on racial trauma, when you look at these autobiographies of people who led these abolition movements, you know, their answer was always yes, as right. in hell yes. And hell I yes. think that is why, even though some days I'm like any other academic, like, well, let me problematize the hell out of this. Yeah. Of course not. Like interest convergence, white right. supremacy is built to last. Like, Yes, yes, and yes, yeah. but it's also um, we are built to break it, and we have already broken it before. I mean, we're BIPOC folks, and I think white allies and accomplices are already know how to live outside of it in different ways, and so right. that's the dream building. I think when we actually do the deep work of racial healing, that's uh, available to us. Wow, powerful! And you, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna nudge you a little bit here. I just say, and you question whether or not you're an actual thought leader. <laughs> um, let's see, you wrote the racial healing handbook. You have all these big ideas and big thoughts to contribute. And, you know, I have to tell you, um, when I tell people that, you know, oh, yeah, the, oh, you're using the racial healing handbook? I know Annalise Singh. They're like, oh, 
You know Annalise Singh? <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, my. I'm like, I don't not only know Annalise Singh, she's a good friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> like, my my cred just goes up, That's up, up. That's hilarious. So, oh yes, my gosh. you are a thought leader, and, and you have a lot of cred in there uh, in all the work that you've done, of course. Um, you know, I think about that lesson learned, too, by the way, um, in, in the comment that you made. You, you turned it around on me, asked me the question, right, and, and um, forced me to think a little bit in, in, in the hot seat. And uh, as I was doing that, you know, you came back with, well, you know, all of the leaders of these movements have answered in the affirmative. Yes. Yes, it's possible. And that, you know, lesson learned. I have to, I have to really reorient my thinking and my, my overt expression to the yes. Yeah. I mean, Alice Walker, we are the ones we've been waiting for. I mean, we could Mm. sing that for the rest of today and remember over and over again that, again, I said liberation is an inside job. I think I was really taught this by, uh, Sri Aurobindo, who was the, one of the first, um, kind of Indian uh, activist who was fighting British colonization. And, of course, he was jailed uh, for a lot of his work and resistance, but he really found what he called true yoga, or what he would say all life is yoga while he was in prison, like many people, like Mm -hmm. Malcolm X, so many people who have been in prison kind of find this deep spiritual connection. And I think, you know, what Sri Aurobindo is really teaching us is that, Um, yes, these oppressive structures are always going to exist. And I mean, we're human. We, we kind of (laughs) suck in a lot of ways. We do a lot of bad things. Um, but when we, um, kind of create community with each other, when we dream build, when we remember like what is actually possible with when humans evolve, I think then the answers come that there's clarity. It's uh, liberation is available to us. Racial healing is available to us. It doesn't matter that the systems are still there. And again, intergenerationally, mm. we're going to break those the hell down. It's, yeah. You can look back at history and it's been very clear. I don't want to be like the progress we've made, but just you, you uh, the resistance comes and um, we fight back more. So. Yeah. That's so important, though. I mean, I love the direction that you're taking this in that way because intergenerationally, right? And and we think, I, I think, um, intergenerationally, we're struggling quite a bit yes. right now, right? And there's a lot of um, dissatisfaction intergenerationally with what, um, you know, the Gen Zers and others are really saying. Like, they're looking out into the world and saying, why haven't you folks fixed this yet and why is it my job to come behind you and clean up this huge mess and are we are we making any progress are are they going to be satisfied with the work that we are doing and and you know what do you think about that I mean, I think for older generations, definitely we need to die off. That's kind of die what off. always happens. <laughs> Let's just die off. And some of that will solve some things, just to be honest. Uh, at the other time, I know there's dissatisfaction, but I see so much hope mm, and good. resistance in their dissatisfaction because I see their clarity. And young yeah. people have always led us. Mm-hmm. When you think about the birth of the abolition movement, it was young folks, right? Like right. at every iteration of abolition, mm-hmm. even Black Lives Matter, right? right? Even all the Asian empowerment, the indigenous mm-hmm. resistance, the Latine kind of like, hey, we're getting there. This is going beyond pride. And I feel hopeful because if you just look at what's going on with gender, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You have a lot of more folks identifying as non-binary. Some folks, right. we 
that's probably a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> a whole see, other podcast. But I see this as really uh, important for racial justice and racial healing because what colonization, white European colonization and culture gave us, which was not a gift, was this gender binary, right? right. And that's not how it existed on every continent and culture, you know, right. especially in BIPOC uh, cultures. There right. wasn't always this man-woman binary. And so part of colonization was ripping apart the spiritual fabric of BIPOC communities. Right. And so, you know, in Indian community and South Asian community, that's, you know, the hijra, the trans and queer people of India had to go away. They had to kind of create these penal codes to really put colonization in and make it institutional. But I think what we're seeing from young people is they're not only busting out of these boxes, they're busting out of these boxes as they're talking about racism. So right. I think right now we're actually moving back to a more indigenous conception of gender, mm -hmm. which is about variance. It's, you know, some First Nations groups kind of think there are as many genders as there are stars in the sky. You know, uh, that gender is a very individual piece. So I think the reclaiming around gender for young folks and, you know, sometimes it needs to have, have a little more depth, keeping an eye on my adultism. I mean, social yeah. media, you can have a good old conversation, for instance, about uh, anti-black racism, but like it still flows between you yeah. <laughs> when you're in person and when you're online. So I'm actually feeling really hopeful about this mm -hmm. new generation. I think they're having conversations about climate change that we could never have had with our generation. So, Dr. Singh, is, this podcast is right on time. We're in the throes of uh, the world on fire, but we're also seeing young people lead movements and in the streets to, mm -hmm. to push back. And so as she talks about the this divide of generations, I am reminded that last week and even last week in New York, last week in DC, people were in the streets fighting mm -hmm. for justice for Palestine. And people who were on the front lines of that were Jewish, voice of Jewish voices for peace. Mm -hmm. And so I see deep solidarity in the midst of turmoil. I see deep community and pushback in the midst of turmoil. And Dr. Singh just continuously names and knocks down all these different systems and structures that we're currently fighting in. But I am deeply reminded that hope is a discipline. Miriam, Miriam Kaba says that. And that is something that we just have to use right now. You can't wake up hoping to feel like things are going to be better and the sun is going to shine brighter. No, we have to wake up and say, we will make a better tomorrow. And That's these excellent. are the ways that that will happen. I love that. That's excellent. No, yeah, Mia, you spot on. Um, I've been at a number of rallies, protests, and it has been Gen Z at the forefront of a lot of these efforts. And I just think that intergenerational healing too is a part of this conversation um, and how we work across time. I remember going to Ghana um, and one of the Adinkra symbols that's, you know, really profound for me was this one called Sankofa. And that is talking about going to the past and being able to learn and bring that to the future. And I feel like we have a tradition to uphold. She shouted out John Lewis, who, um, you know, is a politician, civil rights leader. I'm thinking about my context as being a Black woman in the South, um, the birthplace of the civil rights movement. Um, and so, so much of this 
and the, our histories and our past really are helping to connect and propel us to the future. And yeah, Gen Z is looking to us to say, we want y'all to heal and we want to create a better world for all of us. I also looked up a Gallup study, right? In, in 2020, nearly one in six generation Z adults identify as queer. queer. And I'm like, that is beautiful. Um, that is beautiful. I, that was not... It, even as a millennial, um, I and as somebody who grew up in a very hyper religious environment, you know, like we weren't out like that. I am proud and out now, but I'm looking at Gen Z as those who are inspiring me too. And so a lot of us who are working at institutions, you know, we get into the work to impact students in our communities, but truly, I think it's our students and communities that are impacting us in the most beautiful ways. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And, and you know, we were all talking about our, our generational status and all. You, How old are you? Millennials. I, you know, I'm the tail end of the boomers, man. Boomer! Right? I'm going to push I mean, you over. I mean, I don't I don't take it personally when somebody goes, okay, boomer. You have young people in your house. In the center. Well, I have, I have two Gen Zs, right? I, I got Gen Z kids. And I can remember when I we were working together in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, you were like, my kids were in D.C. They, yeah, they, were out they, they walked out of class the today. Yeah, I was like, Roger, when are they ever in school? And they're, yeah. they're activists. So yeah. I love that. But um, no, I feel like another really important and profound conversation she's having here is talking about um, what colonialism has taken from us, what capitalism, anti-Blackness, all of these things, right, that have created so many ways that dehumanize us. And I really appreciate her bringing that point to light, especially as a queer person and in community with trans and non-binary folk. Um, and I really appreciate how she's highlighting that our liberations are bound together. It is about the work that we do together. And I think we're in a key position to understand oppression from our own lived experiences and identities that are marginalized, but also what it is to have and hold privileged identities as a cisgender woman and to be in community and connection with a trans person and to uplift their voices. And so that's the work that I feel like Dr. Singh is calling us. That's the work Carlton called us, Dr. Green as well. So this is about healing. That's our, our, our mission. Period. Take it away. Let's do, let's do another segment. I, you know, I, I want to bring in some of your expertise again uh, around um, identifying as you said, multi-ethnic, South Asian, racial Rorschach. <laughs> yes. um, and so, you yeah. know, um, we talk a lot in anti-racism about anti-black racism. We talk about indigenization. I want to talk about anti-Asian hate and a little bit about that. Can you comment on some of the issues that you uh, talked about in the past? Yeah, that? it's a super American thing, just like anti-black racism and indigenous erasure and uh, Latin targeting. I mean, uh, it's just very as American as apple pie. Uh, you know, the othering of Asian heritage folks. I mean, I think that it's in the fabric of how this country was founded. If you look at the Chinese Exclusion Act, the internment of uh, Japanese American citizens, if you look at kind of, you know, the South Asian folks that were coming over to also labor in the beginnings of this country, you know, um, like each of those groups threatened uh, white, quote unquote, Americans uh, in terms of jobs. Right. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. these groups had to be othered. Right. Um, and also resting on a system that was anti-indigenous, that was anti-black. And so 
I don't think it's really surprising that, you know, in 2020, obviously you see the rise of Asian hate crimes and right. violence with, you know, mm-hmm. 45s right. uh, kind of anti-Asian um, rhetoric. But I think what we have done well underneath the Asian umbrella is start to have conversations about terminology. Mm-hmm. First of all, like, you know, the word Asian American really kind of came out of this, like it was protest, you know, it was like alongside the black Panther party. Like we right. are protesting, but the, the terms kind of needed to evolve. Right. Yeah. And so Pacific Islander native Hawaiian folks don't always have the same kind of experiences, I think, Mm -hmm. within and outside of higher ed that, for instance, East Asian, South Asian folks, too. So we've got a lot of work to do kind of in our, I would say, Asian American and native Hawaiian Pacific Islander community uh, to really kind of think about how the myth of the model minority not only fuels anti-black racism, I hope at this point in 2023, we feel really clear about the myth of the model minority and how it's alive, but how we can actually move beyond that to organizing again, like Mm -hmm. going back to those roots of organizing in protest. So we can talk about high rates of poverty, high rates of lack of access to university for like our Hmong, our Laotian, Mm -hmm. our Cambodian Mm -hmm. uh, siblings. So the data is not disaggregated, right? We're kind of lumped under this one umbrella of uh, racial category. And that suits the U.S. government well. It doesn't suit our community well, because then it looks like we're high achieving or high education. And it's just not always the truth. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about admissions and we're going to talk about affirmative action during the course of the Thought Leader Summit. And, you know, some of those issues are founded in, you know, the questions of the model minority myth. Right. Right. Yeah, which was created to make sure that we just said, okay, look at these dark-skinned folks. Like, we're achieving more than them of, without any clarity on immigration policies that, for instance, my dad, when he immigrated, he had a PhD. His dad right. had a PhD. Right. He was allowed into this country because he had a PhD. He yeah. It was part – he came over as part of the brain drain yeah, of India. I was going to say that. Yeah, India. the brain drain. Yeah. Yeah, I mean – you know, he didn't have any money. That's a whole other thing. And he worked at an HBCU and we know that HBCUs are historically underfunded. Right. And so, I mean, there's so much to talk about, uh, in terms of undoing, I think, you know, what the racial classification in the land we now call the U.S. of A has done, uh, to our community. And so that's, that's a lot of unlearning, uh, that we have in front of us. It is, it is. I also I want to touch on you know another area of your expertise, and I, in part because we're limited on time, and so um, it seems like a major shift. But um, you know you you talked about non-binary folks and and trans marginalization. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how that? fits into the anti-racism conversation. Yeah, I think when you really have the commitment to dismantle systemic racism, you've got to, again, look at what history and colonization have done to us in terms of gender. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, like women, like BIPOC folks, like queer folks, trans and non-binary folks are used as political footballs. Mm -hmm. Uh, They always have been. And um, it is beyond devastating and enraging because these are some of the folks who have some of the highest health inequities in terms of suicidality, in terms of substance abuse, lack of support, housing and food insecurity. And I don't know that I'm 
hundred percent answering your question, but you know, I have to start with some of the crappy news because when you look at suicidality, you know, the average rate of suicidality for your average American Mm. is 2%. Mm. For trans and non-binary folks, the average suicide attempt is about 40 to 50%. Mm. I mean, that is, I want to scream (laughs) as I'm talking about it. And yet, Trans and non-binary people have always, we've always known ourselves, right? I identify as a genderqueer femme, which means for me, there's a non-binary umbrella. Sometimes I'm standing underneath it, loving it. Sometimes I'm standing outside of it, getting wet. But I think that those of us who are in this community have thought so deeply about our gender identities and expressions more than cisgender people have ever had to do in their life. And we feel very clear. I think I want to hashtag psych alope. I don't know if you know their work. No. South Asian, non-binary, awesome person. And I think uh, I was so glad that they said, you know what, the attacks on our lives, it's not about a failure of education. It's a failure of compassion. It's a failure of empathy. It's a it's actually cisgender people not getting right with your lives in terms of your own gender identities. Cause think about the cost of cisgenderism, even for cisgender people. And, you know, sometimes it can be a boring, brutal and predictable conversation when we're having conversations about the cost of racism for white folks, you got to pay more for your schools. You got to like pay more for your house. You know, Heather McGee, some of us uh, is the best place to read for that. But I think there's a similar thing going on with trans and non-binary folks is that, you know, across generations, we've always been clear about who we are and we've Mm -hmm. always resisted and lasted. But the question is for cisgender people, like, why are you all not doing this work? Why are you okay with the boxes you've been put in? And look at just the health inequities, but just the emotional kind of distress and gender trauma that you all are carrying in your bodies that then gets loaded onto ours. Yeah. That that is what drives the hate crimes. That is what drives the political football, you know, our precious lives and vulnerable lives. But it's also what makes us very clear about our joy, yeah. especially in BIPOC trans and non-binary communities. So um you know, we're waiting for y'all to figure it out. <laughs> waiting for us all to figure it out. And and uh, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna nudge you about the. Uh, am I a thought leader? Uh, my recollection is is this is the second thought leader summit that you've been uh, participant in. Is that correct? Yes, is it? it is. It's yeah. good to be back with you. I was like, yeah. wow, we're in the Our same room. Five years ago. And yeah. what a powerful one. And I just have to give you, Roger, and your team a shout out. Like the relationships I created then, like the vision you kind of created then. And I know it's a very much a collective one. Yeah. I think you kind of launched. Uh, kind of um, a community of empowerment for us all. I certainly would never have applied to Tulane if I hadn't gone to the first one. But I have a feeling that there are a lot of people who came into that space that we weren't always having the best experience in our own professional lives. But I think we found paths of freedom and liberation ourselves. So Mm -hmm. congrats to the ripple effect uh, for you and your team. And yeah, I'm very grateful for you. Well, we're pleased to have you here and have people like you who are such huge contributors to the work that's being done to contribute to the Thought Leader Summit this year, five years ago when you were here, and to do all of the work that you've been doing in such an, an amazing way throughout the course of your career and can't wait to see what is yet to come.
She said so much, you know, she went from talking about anti-Asian hate, racism, the model minority myth. She also talks about, right, non-binary and trans marginalizations and the real impact of oppression, right? She talked about suicide rates um, and the ways that there are increased health disparities, wealth disparities. And then she ended us off with, despite those things, there's still this sense of hope and clarity about who we are, about our right to exist and to be and to thrive and to strive. And so I just, I'm always just like in awe of her work. And to experience joy. Like I, we cannot get away from that. She ends it by saying, and we, and our joy. In the midst of oppression, as she's talking about suicide, as she's talking about health inequalities, as she's talking about her father being part of the brain drain from colonialism, making his way to a HBCU, literally reminding us to find the joy in the midst of it. And I don't know why I'm so overwhelmed by that, but I am because hmm. the world is hard. It's and very people hard. People are right? not like they're not doing okay. And for Dr. Singh to like name all those things and tell us to come back to find community, solidarity, and joy, it, it's like burst to my heart wide open because last week in the midst of people marching in the streets, I also saw people dancing. Wow. Yeah. And so, and I saw Palestinian people dancing and I was just like, okay, as the world is bombarding us with all this thing, all these things that are really hurtful that are actually super violent to our mental health, that I'm watching human beings still figure out a way to hold each other in dance. Mm-hmm. And that's the world that I believe is possible. <laughs> yeah, that's so beautiful. Thank you for bringing that into our podcast and into this room right now. Yeah, thank you for your vulnerability. And yeah, I mean, so much of what she's talking about um, is the kinds of... I don't know, reclamation and restoration that we feel when we come together in community and in solidarity. Um, It is about joy. It is about our joy. It's about the future generation's joy. Like we are trying to ensure that our institutions are thinking about healing so that we can move ourselves into this place of joy. So that's the work. That is the work. That is the work. And that's a great place for us to conclude this segment. We want to thank you for joining us on Thought Leaders Unplugged. Subscribe to our podcast to stay connected for upcoming episodes where we learn from thought leaders, exchange ideas, and co-create an inclusive educational landscape. This podcast is a production of the University of Maryland Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. Acknowledgements include the following individuals, Dr. Daitu DeSasa, Daniel Moore, and the entire team at the center for their contributions to the production, review, and editing of this podcast. This is Thought Leaders Unplugged. <music>